for the first time in what seems like forever, we actually had a full, almost full weekend of games with only the exception of one game that got postponed due to COVID cases within the men's program at Providence. But other than that, I mean, we got through the entire weekend, at least on the women's side, with every single game played. And a grand total of nine games were played this weekend on the women's side. On the men's side, all but one of five scheduled games were played, thankfully. I'll cover all that. Break down where I see these teams and rank them heading into a, again, there's a lot of season to go. We are, if I do the math right, we're we're now 55 days away from Selection Sunday. And now that Everyone in the Big East, at least on the men's and women's side, have each gotten enough games under their belt where I can actually get a good feel and good gauge of how teams are. Now will be the time for me to reveal my power rankings around the Big East in men's and women's basketball. I'll have that recap the weekend. And I got a special Butler UConn men's home and home preview coming up on this brand new episode of the Igloo. What's up, y'all? Timmy Isis here with you. So let's get right into it. Friday, the action started in the afternoon with St. John's taking on Providence. Providence got off to a great start. They led 18 to 11 after one. And... Providence's offense, I mean, St. John's offense really wasn't great all game, but I mean, Providence started off with 18 in the first quarter, but really take, tapered off, only scoring 38 the rest of the way, but so did St. John's, and a credit to St. John, uh, Providence's defense, but the Friars, that gives them now back-to-back Big East wins with a 56-49 victory over the Red Storm at Alumni Hall. Leading the way and getting the start in this game, Mary Baskerville. 20 points, 11 rebounds. Seeing the kind of player that was up there as an all-Big East caliber player for the Friars. 8 for 16 from the floor and only played 22 minutes. They got 16 from Janai Crooms to go with 8 rebounds. And not really much outside of that. I mean, Kylie Shepard scored 6. Olivia Olsen off the bench chipped in six points as well on three of six shooting in 14 minutes. Emily Archibald knocked down a couple of threes to finish with six points on three attempts. Alyssa Geary, a rough day for her, just two points on the day. But, you know, with Baskerville stepping up and Kroom stepping up, especially when you have other bench players like Lauren Sampson who didn't score in this game, It was great for Baskerville to step up because she hadn't had a big output like that. I mean, meaning having a 20-plus point game. She hasn't had 20-plus in a game all year. She had put up 15 a couple times, but for her to put up 20 in this game, that was big. 
And for the Friars to get a second consecutive Big East win, to get to 500, that's tremendous for Coach Crowley. As for St. John's, they were led by Kadeja Bailey, 19 points, 4 of 5 from 3, 7 of 12 from the field. Leilani Correa, 13 points, but a rough, rough shooting day for the junior. 3 of 21 from the floor. And St. John's as a team did not shoot well. 26% from the field and from three-point range. Providence was just under 38% from the field, 30.8% from three. But St. John's, they made six threes compared to Providence's four. And outside of Bailey and Correa, not really much. Raven Peoples got the start, eight points, but 14 rebounds. Daniel Patterson, just four points in 19 minutes. Four points from Unique Drake, who was just two for 11 from the field. And they only got one point from the bench, and that came courtesy of a free throw from Camry Clegg. So, a big win for the Friars. And as for the Red Storm, after winning their Big East opener against Seton Hall, it was a month and a half ago, but it seems like an eternity ago, that dropped the Red Storm to 1-3 and three in the league. In a game on FS2, DePaul got off to a, a bit of a slow start offensively. They trailed Nova 33-30 at the break, but really blew the doors open in the third, outscoring Nova 23-13. That made a huge difference in Roof of the Blue Demons, protecting home court at Wintrust Arena with a 75-63 win. And for Villanova, that ended... A pretty lengthy losing streak. Because they had won five in a row heading in. And DePaul's able to overcome a 31-point outburst from Maddie Segrist, who also grabbed 14 rebounds and shot 12 of 18 from the field, 2 of 4 from 3. The Wildcats as a team, though, really struggled with the three ball. Outside of Segrist, they were just 2 for 20. Lior Garzon knocked down a three, as did Bella Runyon. Garzon, 12 points. And by the way, Villanova was out was without Brianna Hurley. Big, big difference with her on the floor. Garzon is a viable sidekick to Segrist. But she doesn't bring the same elements of the game that Hurley does. And Garzon, 12 points, 10 rebounds, but 3 for 11 from the field, 1 for 5 from 3. Runyon had 7 points and 5 assists. Lucy Olsen was just 2 for 10 from the field, just 4 points on the night. And then Brooke Mullen was 0 for 11 from the field, 0 for 7 from 3, put up a goose egg. And then off the bench, they got 7 and 16 minutes from Caitlin Orahel and a basket from Kenzie Gardler. But DePaul, they really shot the ball well. Over 50% yet again. 5 for 14 from 3. And Sonia Morris, who to me seemed like the player that was going to be the all-Biggies first-team player coming out of DePaul, seems like if anyone's going to have that honor this year, it's going to be Anissa Morrow, who I'll touch on in a second. But Morris, a big night for her. 25 points, 11 for 19 from the floor, 1 for 4 from 3. But Anissa Morrow, also really good in this game. 18 points, 11 rebounds. For the player who, entering the weekend, was leading the nation in rebounds as a freshman. 
And Mora was 8 for 13 from the field. Lexi held 14 points, 2 for 3 from distance, 6 for 8 from the field. Deja Church, 8 points on 3 of 10 shooting. Darion Rogers only had 2 points in 24 minutes. Off the bench, Dee Bakelja had 5 points. And Kiara Collier also knocked down a big 3. So DePaul, after that tough loss in overtime at Marquette Wednesday, they bounced back and end Nova's 5-game win streak with that win. And how about the statement that Creighton made? The Blue Jays curb stomping Seton Hall 83 to 60. They and they got off to a great start. Well, early on, you know, Seton Hall, you know, kept pace with, with Creighton. They tied it at 10 right around the halfway mark of the first half, but Creighton just roared through the rest of the quarter. Ending the half on a 16 to ending the quarter rather on a 16 to 2 run. They went up 49-34 at the break. And they win by 23. And that's even with getting outscored 16-13 in the fourth. So they had a 26-point lead after three. And one player that had a breakout game here and a breakout weekend, as I'll touch on later, Emma Ronzik. 27 points, 12 of 16 from the floor, 1 of 4 from 3. Lauren Jensen, 4 for 7 from distance, 14 points on 5 of 9 shooting. Peyton Brodsky, 12 points, 5 assists, 5 for 7 from the field, 2 of 4 from 3. Tata Brembaugh, only 4 points, but 11 assists. And then off the bench, again, Probably Jim Flannery's best asset. And he says his bench is so good that he doesn't even consider them a bench. But Molly Mogensen, coming off the bench, scored 10 points, 4 for 8 from the floor, 1 of 2 from 3. Mallory Brake had 8 points. Morgan Molly only had 2. Jamie Horan only had 1. And Rachel Saunders with 3. And Carly Batchelor, you know... Rounding out that starting unit only had two points in this game in 19 minutes. So the most minutes anyone played was Rembau, who played just 29 minutes. No, the, the lowest number of minutes anyone played on Creighton was Jamie Horan, who played 13 minutes. That just goes to show the depth of Creighton. But for Seton Hall, Curticia Dean was good off the bench. 21 minutes played, 13 points, 9 rebounds, 5 of 9 from the field. And Katie Armstrong emerged in this game. I mean, she hadn't scored more than th- more than 3 in a game. Well, well, more. Well, okay, all right. Let me correct myself. She hadn't scored more than one point in a game since De- December fifth, and she also hadn't played more than twenty minutes since December third. You know, she was getting a starting role, and also, you know, in this game off the bench, she hit double digits for the first time since November sixteenth. Armstrong went three for eight from the floor, one of two from three, finished with 10 points and played 27 minutes. The starting unit just did not have it for Seton Hall on this day. 
Maya Bembry, only eight points on four of eight shooting. Sidney Cooks played just 16 minutes, 7.7 rebounds. Maya Jackson, six points, two of nine from the field, one for three from three. Lauren Park Lane and Andre Espinosa Hunter, who were supposed to be arguably the best one-two punch in the conference, they only played 20 and 21 minutes respectively and each scored four points. That's not a recipe for success in this league. And then Daniel Robinson off the bench had eight points, by the way. So the bench, those three players, Dean, Robinson, and Armstrong, combined to score 31 of Seton Hall's 60 points. So those three players scored just over half of the points. The, the starting unit scored less than less than that. But Creighton, yeah, they stay hot with that win. And that win put them up to 6-1 and one in the league. In Georgetown's first game since December 13th, so over a month, yeah, the signs of rust definitely showed. They only hit more than 10 points, well, 10 or more points in one, one of the four quarters. And they were down 38-13 at the break. And Marquette welcomes Georgetown back to the court with an emphatic, 68-32 drubbing. Carissa McLaughlin, 21 points, all from behind the arc, where she shot an even 50% at 7 for 14. Lauren Van Clunen, a double-double, 10 points, 10 rebounds on 5 of 9 shooting. Off the bench, Daniel Middleton, who had who stepped up big against DePaul. In 24 minutes, she scored a dozen points and was 5-9 from the field. Back to the other starters. Jordan King with 7 points, 6 boards, and 3 assists. Chloe Murata with 8 points. Rachel Nkumu. No, Rose Nkumu, excuse me. I don't know why I thought Rachel, but... So, Rose Nkumu, 4 points, 9 assists on the night. And then other players to score, score off the bench... Juliana Okusen had had a bucket. Kennedy Miles had four in her first appearance in. Well, I mean, so she had been, I mean, playing, but not a lot of minutes and hadn't been, you know, putting the ball in the hoop. But here, you know, she scored four points in this game. But back for Georgetown, their leading scorer, I kid you not, only scored six points. And that was the freshman, Kalia Myricks who scored six in 22 minutes. As for their starters, Milan Bolden-Morris had just five points on two of 12 shooting. Grace Ann Bennett and Kelsey Ransom each had four. Tegan Flaherty knocked down a three. And for Flaherty, that was her first game since December 3rd. And by the way, something worth noting, Georgetown was without one of their top forwards, which was Jillian Archer. So instead, they start Shania Wright, the senior, who played 13 minutes, scored just two points. As for the rest of the bench, they got three from Brianna Scott, a two from Yasmin Ott, and three points from Kaylin West. 
So a disappointing welcome back for Georgetown as they get clobbered by Marquette in their suffocating defense, 68-32. Speaking of blowouts, number 10 UConn back to that at the XL Center against Harv- uh, against Xavier. Huskies win 78-41. Again, when UConn sets the tone like they do, going up 15 after one, it, it's pretty much game over. I mean, you could probably argue the game was probably over by the, when UConn tipped the ball off. Because UConn is that much better than everybody else. Especially a team like Xavier. But the Huskies win 78-41. Caroline Ducharme, 20 points on the day. 4 for 10 from 3. 6 of 17 from the field. Kristen Williams with 19 points. 3 of 7 from 3. 7 for 13 from the field. Olivia Nelson-Adota, 11 points on the day. They only got 4 points from Dorka Juhas. And only 2 from Nika Mule. Although Mule, 6 boards and 5 assists. But I really like the way the bench played. Pyth Gabriel who returned from injury earlier in the week after having missed nearly two whole months. She came off the bench and scored nine points in just 10 minutes. Aaliyah Edwards, six points on the night. Avina Westbrook, just five points. And also scoring in just five minutes was Amari DeBerry. Going to Xavier... Their leading scorer was Anaya Harris with 12 points. They got 10 off the bench from Michaela Hayes. And the rest of the starters really, really struggled. Well, the rest of Melanie Moore starters struggled. Ayanna Townsend only played 10 minutes scoring 4 points. Kay Satterfield only had 4 points. Michaela Scarlett and Charla Beeler each had 2 points each. Nia Clark came off the bench in this game. Her first appearance since December 19th. And scored five points in 23 minutes. And then they got a bucket on one of seven shooting from Shelby Calhoun. So UConn, they stay unbeaten in the Big East with an emphatic W. And then Sunday. Seton Hall, after that disappointing outing against Creighton on Friday night, they go to Providence and trounce the Friars. They win 62-42, but what really stood out the Pirates outscored Providence in the second half 27 to 15. So that's a good win for Seton Hall to get back to 500 overall and a big performance from Lauren Park Lane. 30 points on the day, 10 for 22 from the field, 4 of 9 from 3, 11 points each from Andrea Espinosa-Hunter and Sydney Cooks. And for Cooks, she got a double-double, 13 rebounds on the day on 5 of 12 shooting. All 62 points came from the starters, 4 from Maya Bembry, 6 from Maya Jackson. As for Providence, leading the way, they got 10 points each from Janai Crooms and Olivia Olsen. And for Olsen, she did it off the bench, also grabbing 12 rebounds, but was just 3-for-10 from the field. Providence, big reason why they lost. They didn't make a single 3. Missed all 11 attempts. And they only shot just a hair under 26% from the floor. So, 
So back to the starting unit. Lawrence Sampson got the start and went scoreless. Mary Baskerville, after dropping 20 against St. John's, she was 0 for 7 from the field, only scored 3 points from the free throw line in 21 minutes. Alyssa Geary, 6 points on 2 of 10 shooting. Kylie Shepard, just 4 points. And then off the bench, they got 6 from Audrey Koch, who really hasn't seen the court a lot this year. And they got 3 points from Nariah Scott. So for Seton Hall... They desperately needed that win. They definitely came out with the intensity that they lacked against Creighton. That's for sure. Shifting gears. Villanova Marquette, the Wildcats, go into Milwaukee and shock the Golden Eagles. I mean, I really think those teams are kind of equal in terms of their talent levels. But Villanova getting a big win at the L. Over on CBS Sports Network, mind you, Villanova wins 58-55. And guess who led the way? Maddie Segrist. 19 points, 7 of 16 from the field, 2 of 5 from 3. Lior Garzon. And, by, and Okay, so they were without Hurley Friday and lost. Still without her Sunday and they win. That's impressive. And it just shows, you know, Villanova can win without important players. I mean, they need Maddie Segrist more than anyone else, but the fact that they won without the Robin to Segrist's Batman, Brianna Hurley, that says a lot about this team. But Liar Garzon stepped up in that role. 14 points, 11 rebounds, 6 of 15 from the field, 0 for 8 from 3, but the double-double is really what stands out to me. But if anyone was an X-Factor, off the bench, Caitlin Orr held 11 points in 20 minutes. And that definitely helped after Brooke Mullen was limited to just 20 minutes who and knocked down a three, mind you. And they got six points from Bella Runyon and five from Lucy Olson. But Orahel, those 11 points made quite the difference. As for Marquette, leading the wave is Jordan King with 14 points. Lauren Van Clunen, 11 points, on, but 4-14 from the field. Chris McLaughlin couldn't emulate that same kind of success she had against Georgetown. Just eight points, three of nine from the field, two for seven from three. Only five from Chloe Murata, who fouled out. Only four from Rosen Kumu. Off the bench, Lisa Carlin was seven on a perfect three for three from the field and one of two from the free throw line. And they got six from Danielle Middleton. But for Denise Dillon and company, what a win for the Cats in Milwaukee. Meanwhile, Creighton survived a bit of a scare from St. John's. And they trailed at the half by three. It was 42-39 Red Storm, but no pun intended. Creighton storms back to win 86-80. And another big breakout performance from Ronzik. 30 points on the day, 5 of 8 from 3, 10 for 17 from the field. You know, when I'm recording this, Big East Player of the Week hasn't been announced yet. I'm just going to assume Ronzik's going to win Player of the Week. Unbelievable performances against Seton Hall and St. John's. So Ronzik set 10 for 17 from the field, 5 of 8 from 3. Lauren Jensen was 16. 10 points, 12 assists from Tatum Rembaugh. Off the bench, X-Factor type performance from Morgan Molly. 15 points, 6 of 12 from the field, 3 for 7 from 3. How about 7 from Rachel Saunders too? 
You know, that made up for two scoreless performances from Mallory Brake, Mallory Brake and Molly Mogensen. And now Peyton Brodsky scored just two points in 12 minutes. Carly Batchelor, six points in 19 minutes. As for St. John's, you know, Leilani Correa, much better performance, 26 points, and she took two fewer shots than she did against Providence. 11 for 19 from the field, four for nine from three, also dished out five assists. Kadesia Bailey at 22 in this game. On 10 of 13 shooting and 2 for 3 from 3. Daniel Patterson stepped up with 15. Raven Peoples, tough shoot, you know, didn't really get a lot of looks, but 2 for 4 from the field, 13 rebounds, 4 points in 38 minutes. Unique Drake, 8 points, 4 assists on 3 of 7 shooting. And then they got only 5 bench points, and they only played 2 off the bench. Cameron Clegg scored a 3, and Daniel Cosgrove with 2. So St. John's tough loss despite shooting 53% from the field, but X Factor, Creighton, you know, knocked down 11 threes to St. John's's eight. And they got to the free throw line more. Creighton 15 for 17 from the free throw line. St. John's is perfect at six for six. But again, Creighton got to the line more often. And they also didn't turn the ball often as off. Turn the ball over as often. 13 turnovers for St. John's to Creighton 7. Part of what's made Creighton really good, they they don't turn the ball over a lot. And when you don't turn the ball over a lot more often than, than not, you're going to win. And then finally, DePaul absolutely slaughters Georgetown. You know, Georgetown, the offense was almost non-existent against Marquette. Because of the pace DePaul plays at, yeah, Georgetown's offense got into it a little bit. But DePaul's offense is on another level. Yet again, the Blue Demons drop 100, finishing with a 102-69 win, and Anissa Morrow again balled out. 23 points, 14 rebounds, 10 for 14 from the field. 21 from Sonia Morris, a 9 of 14 from the field, 3 for 5 from 3. Deja Church bounced back with a 19-point performance on 5 of 8 from 3 and 6 for 10 from the field. Lexi held 18 points. 4 for 8 from 3, 6 for 10 from the field. Darion Rogers, 7 points, 5 boards, 5 assists in just 24 minutes. Off the bench, Kiara Collier at 9. Also, you know, knocking down at 3 was Kiki Rimmer, who, that was her first game since December 6th, in exactly a month. Last time she played was December 16th. And then knocking down a couple free throws was Kendall Holmes. As for Georgetown, much better offensive performance, obviously. Milan Bolden-Morris with 17 points, 5 of 10 from 3, 6 of 17 from the field. Kelsey Ransom with 13, Yasmin Ott with 11. So, Katie Myr- uh, Kalia Myricks got the start, but went scoreless in 21 minutes. Grace Ann Bennett, 19 minutes played, 8 points, but was battling foul trouble. Did grab 6 rebounds and was 4 for 8 from the field. Off the bench, you know, Shania Wright had seven. They got a bucket from Brianna Scott and a bucket from Ariel Jenkins. Oh, also nine points from Kaylin West in 18 minutes. So again, DePaul stays hot with that W. And again, they dominated. Now, Shifting gears to the men's side. Four games. Only one that was postponed was UConn at Providence. 
So let's start with Creighton at Xavier. Creighton got off to a good start. They led 34-29. But Xavier's offense, much, much better in the second half. You know, they really got it going. And once they got on that big run and eventually took the lead, I mean, it was sayonara. Especially with that Cintas Center crowd. It was game over. I mean, the entire Cincinnati was juiced the entire day. Because the Bengals were playing at 430 in a playoff game, which they won, as y'all know, against the Raiders. But Xavier rallies to win 80-73, coming off that rough, heartbreaking loss to Villanova. And it was a balanced effort. Their leading scorer was Colby Jones, who only had 16 points on 6 of 9 shooting. They got 13 each from Zach Fremantle and Paul Scruggs. Fremantle had a double-double with 11 rebounds. Off the bench, a dozen points each for Jack Nungy and Adam Kunkel. Nungy, only 3 for 11 from the field. And for Kunkel, that timely 3-point shooting made a big difference. And then they also got 10 from Jerome Hunter, a guy who hasn't been scoring the rock all that well as of late. I mean, I know he had double digits at Butler, but other than that, I mean, he really hasn't hit double digits. I mean, that was his only his third game hitting double digits all season. And that, you know, they needed that because Nate Johnson... Played just 23 minutes and only had three points. And again, Creighton falls despite shooting an even 50% from the field and 42.9% from three. Xavier didn't shoot well. 43.1% and 31.3% from three. But they did have 29 free throw attempts compared to Creighton's 10. Also, what helps Creighton turn the ball over 21 times. More often than not, when you turn the ball over 20 plus times, you're gonna lose. It's kind of like the um, you know the South Park uh, skiing memes, like you know, like you're not gonna have a good time. But Alex O'Connell led the way with 22 points, seven of ten from the field, four for six from three. Ryan Nemhard, 18 points, but and six assists, but mind you. 8 for 21 from the field, just 1 of 6 from 3. Ryan Hawkins with a double-double, 13 points, 13 rebounds, 4 for 8 from the field, 3 for 5 from 3. Ryan Kalkbrenner had 8 points on 4 of 8 shooting and 4 assists also, along with 5 block shots. Arthur Kaluma fouled out, 5 rebounds, 7 points, 3 for 5 from the floor. And they only got 5 bench points from Trey Alexander in 20 minutes. Keyshawn Vizel only played seven minutes. Roddy Andronikashvili only played five minutes. And Devin Davis only saw the court at the very end. But Xavier, they shake off the, the loss to Villanova with a good comeback win. And Creighton, after that 2-0 start to conference play, now they are 2-2, losing their first game back in action in a week and a half. Don't even get me started on this next game. Number 20, Seton Hall at Marquette. Well, first of all, Seton Hall shot themselves in the foot early. They let Marquette get on a big run and also hand down, man down on a lot of threes and not even just hand down, man down. Marquette was just getting wide open look after wide open look and being the good three-point shooting team that they were, they were making them. 
But Seton Hall willed their way back into this game, and really it was Bryce Aiken doing that. And same with Alexis Yetna. And I mean, there were some guys, I mean, Trey Jackson looked completely out of it. He only played six minutes and was pulled from the game altogether after just a stupid flagrant one foul as he yanked a Marquette player's jersey from behind as he was going up for a layup. Just stupid. Absolutely stupid foul. And Yetna earned those other 34 minutes and played great. And Seton Hall got out to a lead. They led by five points at one point in the second half. And I'll tell you what, Seton Hall played much better defensively in the second half. Not only Marquette wasn't making their shots. They were making their shots because Seton Hall was defending them well. And for Seton Hall to hold a team that was shooting eight, that was making 80, how do I say it? Okay, to get the wording right. To hold a Marquette team that had, in their last three games, had been averaging 89 points a game, and they'd just given up 44 to them in the first half of this one, to hold them to just 29 points in the second half. That's something. Like, Seton Hall got back to their defensive identity because their defense, the last two games, even though they did win against UConn, it looked putrid. Especially against DePaul. But they battened battened down the hatches. And they held tight. And Seton Hall had their chances late in the game. I mean, they were up three with a minute and a half to go. Greg Elliott hits a game-tying three. Marquette retakes the lead, and then Seton Hall reties it on pair of free throws by Aiken. And this is where things got ugly. And by the way, there were a lot of things that the referees fucked up on. For one, they should have called the shot clock violation. I mean, the shot clock was winding down, and a Seton Hall player was trying to make a save. He did not have full, clear possession of the basketball when the shot clock buzzer went off. The referee should have blown it dead and called the shot clock violation. But it was like one of those things where the horn barely went off and it was a quick, you know, reset button, boom, we're back at 30 seconds because I'm assuming the shot clock operator thought that Seton Hall had established full possession. The referee should have known that the horn was hit and that there wasn't clear possession, blow the whistle, call the shot clock violation, award the ball to Seton Hall. But because of that, because of the confusion, Marquette gets the ball back and they immediately score. Like, really? Like, that's one thing. The controversial call that we'll talk about, and everybody saw it. Greg Elliott trying to draw a foul on a last-second three-point attempt. Well, apparently, according to the refs, after reviewing, it was only a two-point attempt, even though I didn't see anything that was indicative that it was a two, not a three. But he's fouled, and I air quote this, even though you can't see it. He was fouled by Bryce Aiken. Even though Greg Elliott leaned into Bryce Aiken, 
And Bryce was just trying to lean back to just let him get the shot off because he knew it was going to be a sloppy shot if he tried to lean into him. Rather than go through a normal fluid shot motion. If any, if there ever, if there could have been a foul called, it should have been if on Aiken. There, sh- it should have been on you know like because he kind of held his arm a little bit before he got the shot up. But on the shot itself, it's either a no call or it's an offensive. It, I don't see anywhere on that on that shot where it's a foul on Aiken. And I'm not even trying to be biased. I'm just trying to see this as an official. And I watched it over and over and over again. I really don't understand how the referee, Matt Potter, saw a foul on Bryce Aiken and not Greg Elliott. On the shot. Could have maybe tried to call the hold beforehand, but not on the shot. But because of that, Marquette makes one of two. Elliott misses the second. Roden gets the rebound. They call timeout. If you're a referee, you need to tell yourself, time, score, situation. You're in a one-point game with only one, 1.8 seconds left. On a missed free throw, the inbounder cannot run the baseline. He is held to his spot. If it was a made free throw, yeah, he could run baseline. The third official, Paul Zelt. Tells Miles Kale he can run the baseline. So what does Miles Kale naturally naturally do? He runs the baseline. And stepping in is James Breeding to call the travel. Because that's the actual call when you run the baseline when you're not supposed to. It's a travel. That's the actual call. And they didn't call it in, uh, ex- except for when Shaka was screaming for a travel. Because he knew the situation and the refs didn't. He got three Division I high-level basketball officials. One of which, James Breeding, has been on a handful of Final Fours. Part of my language, but how the fuck do you not know the situation that he can't run the baseline? How? Like, the foul call is one thing because that's a judgment call. But that is just irresponsible and negligent. Because that ruined Miles Kale's idea for what he was going to do on the inbounds play. Should he have known that he couldn't run the baseline? Probably. But when an official is telling you that you can, even though you can't, that's inexcusable. Because that's something you're supposed to get right 10 out of 10. And what happens? Marquette ends up winning the game. Did that call did did that call on Aiken cost Seton Hall the game? No. But it did play a pretty bit damn big role. Obviously, it wasn't the thing, but if it boils down to that. I mean, if you're a Seton Hall fan, of course that's not going to sit well with you at all. The foul call, again, is one thing. But the gross negligence to misinform a guy that he can run the baseline when he can't. And you're supposed to know the situation all along. Especially after the timeout was called. And you have a minute to be telling yourself that. That's just pathetic. Absolutely pathetic. And this is now the second time in a week where... 
where we've had a James Breeding-led crew oversee an absolute clusterfuck of a game. And this is regular with Breeding. You know what? I'm going to abstain from saying everything else I want to. I'm going to save it for the icebreaker. All right? But anyways, for Marquette, leading the way, Daryl Morsell was great in this game. 26 points, 8 for 12 from the field, 4 5 from 3. 18 from Justin Lewis on 7 of 17 shooting and 2 for 5 from 3. Off the bench, they got 9 from Cam Jones, all from behind the arc, where he was 3 for 5. Greg Elliott had 8 points, 2 of 6 from the field, 1 of 2 from 3. And that 1-3 he made tied the game at 70. Osui Godaro only had 2 points. David Joplin knocked down a 3 in just 2 minutes of action. Kirkweth, 2 for 4. 4 points, 6 rebounds, and a couple block shots. Omax Prosper only had 1 point on the on the day. And Tyler Kolick, 2 points, 1 of 7 shooting. Again, he's struggling shooting the ball. And again, he only finished with 2 points, but 7 assists. And Cam Jones had 4 assists, by the way. As for Seton Hall, Bryce Aiken, 5 for 8 from 3, 9 for 15 from the floor, finished with 28 points. Alexis Yetna, as mentioned, again, Trey Jackson was just completely out of it. Just two points in six minutes. Alexis Yetna played the other 34 minutes at the four. Scoring 15 points and grabbing 16 rebounds. And outside of Aiken, he was the only other Pirate to make a three. Because the Pirates were six for 21 from three. Marquette was 11 for 22. You want to talk about how Marquette won the game? Well, they were 11 for 22 from three. Seton Hall was six for 21. They also didn't, they, Seton Hall also committed twice as many turnovers as Marquette. 20 turnovers to Marquette's 10. Also doesn't help that Seton Hall was 16 for 23 from the free throw line. Marquette was 12 for 16. Seton Hall had a major rebounding advantage, out rebounding the, the Golden Eagles 47 26, but. Again, when you turn the ball over as much as they did and you don't shoot the three balls nearly as well as your opponent, you're most likely you're going to lose. So it wasn't just that call that lost the game for Seton Hall. It was, it was a couple other things as mentioned. So I'm just going to clear the air and make sure that nobody gets my message misconstrued. Because I'm not blaming the Seton Hall loss on the officials. Although the the end of the game was extremely mismanaged to the point where it needs to be addressed. And there needs to be a public statement from the conference. Because this shit cannot be accepted anymore. If the Big East really holds itself to a high standard, they will address this. I'd prefer if they did it publicly rather than just doing it behind closed doors. They will make sure that their games are officiated by competent officials and competent crews. Which again, I'll speak about later. Now, now on Sunday,
Villanova just eviscerated Butler in their first Wells Fargo Center home game of the year. Final score was 82-42. to Like, good God. I'm pretty sure that no Big East team since realignment has won a regular season game by 40 or more. I, I, I was there when Villanova beat St. John's by 41 in the Big East tournament in 2017. But Villanova dropped 108 in that game. They hold Butler to 42, and I know Butler's offense is just dog shit. Pun intended, I guess? Maybe it wasn't intended. I don't know. But Villanova just stifled them and just completely dismantled them in every aspect of the game. Villanova wins 82-42, and they outscored Butler 43-19 in the second half. And really balanced scoring effort. Con Gillespie with 17 on the day. And by the way, Villanova's 12 for 19 from three. That's 63.2%. They made 12 threes on seven fewer attempts compared to Butler, who was seven for 26. Every possible aspect of the game, Villanova dominated. Except for blocked shots. It was like three to two. And shockingly, Butler only committed one more turnover. Only one more turnover than Villanova did. I mean, Villanova out-rebounded Butler 35-21. I mean, they were 14 for 15 from the free throw line. Butler was 3 for 6. 63% from 3 20, compared to 26.9. 59.6% from the field compared to 30.8%. So anyways, Gillespie was 6 for 7 from the field, 5 for 6 from 3, 17 points, 15 from Justin Moore, 7 boards, 5 assists. Eric Dixon had 14 along with 5 boards and 4 assists. Jermaine Samuels with 14 and 5. Brandon Slater only had 2 points from the free throw line, that was it. Caleb Daniels with 8 points off the bench, Brian Antoine with 3 off the bench in 19 minutes, and again, that was a 3-pointer. Trey Patterson was 5 you know, two for two from the field, knocked down a three, five points. And and that was at the end of the game. And then Nanunjoku scored four points at the end. I mean, I mean, Sakatology tweeted, and I, I, I think it had to be his tweet. You know, he said something along like, along the lines of like, I think it was against Creighton. He's like, Jay, we're up 30. I think it's okay to put Trey Patterson in the game. <laughs> like, and not to mention, when you beat a team by 40, or when you get beat by 40, the last thing you want is the obligatory James J. Wright, you know, good game tweet. Because that feels like, you know, you've already been placed in the casket by Villanova, and they've lowered you in it, and now Jay Wright, and I know Jay Wright's a good guy. But when you beat a team by 40 and you're tweeting about how great of a team they are and yada, 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 you have to understand why that comes off as off-putting, a little condescending, and disingenuous. Listen, I'm just playing devil's advocate here. Maybe, maybe I'm striking a chord with everyone outside of Villanova here. I assume Jay means well. But... It doesn't come off that way 
because the last thing you want to hear when you get beat by 40, you know, they, they played a good game, a great effort out of like, that's what you don't want to hear. Like, cause it's like, really dude, like you just beat us by 40. If you want to say we suck, then say it. I mean, I know that's not how Jay feels, but again, from a psychology standpoint, I mean, listen, if you I'm just telling you, if you're a Villanova fan, again, I trust that Jay means well when he tweets these things, but you have to understand why it may come off as disingenuine in this situation where in a close game, like they had against Seton Hall and against Xavier recently. Yeah. Makes more sense. But after you shellac a team by 40. Yeah, it just doesn't seem fake. At least I'll admire the consistency. But again, I'm just trying to play devil's advocate and explain. Listen, this is how and why someone or a good chunk of fans will see it as disingenuine and a little bit condescending. Anyways, for Butler, Chuck Harris led the way 15 points on 6 of 15 from the field. 3 for 5 from 3. Bryce Enzi, the only other Bulldog in double figures. Yeah, he was perfect from the field. 4 for 4 from the field. 2 for 2 from behind the arc. 10 points in 23 minutes. Bryce Golden went scoreless. You know, Jaden Taylor only had 5 points. Jair Bolden scored the first 2 points for Butler, then didn't score the rest of the game. And then Aaron Thompson only had 2 points. As for the rest of the bench, Bo Hodges scored 4 points. Seamus Lukosius knocked down a three. Miles Tate. You know, played in his first game since December 18th. Played just four minutes and didn't score. John Michael Malloy got a free throw to go in nine minutes of play. Ty Gross, Ty Groshi didn't score. Just overall, just a bad day if you're to be a Butler Bulldog. And again, all Nova, they win by 40. And then in the Garden, St. John's beats Georgetown 88-69. They led by 11 at the break. And keep in mind, again, they didn't have Patrick Ewing on the sidelines Thursday. They didn't have him Sunday. Louis Orr acting as the head coach. At St. John's, I feel like they should have won this game by a lot more, but, I mean, they still handled their business and won convincingly. And Julian Champagny still had a good night despite a slow start. Finished with 25 points, 9 for 20 from the field in 34 minutes. Dylan Wusu was really good. 17 points, 7 assists, 6 for 8 from the field, and 4 for 5 from 3. Dylan Wusu is not really known as a 3-point shooter, but he looked like... a he looked like a marksman today. Pasha Alexander also had 17 to go along with six boards and seven assists. It was perfect from the field at four for four and nine for 10 for the free throw line. 11 for Montez Mathis. 10 off the bench from Aaron Wheeler. Six from Steph Smith, all from behind the arc on two of three shooting. Only two points in 10 minutes for Joel Soriano, who once again battled foul trouble. And St. John's, man, they they really did a great job shooting the ball. 51.7% from the field and just 
under 39% from three. I think that's a pretty darn good shooting day. Georgetown, 34.6% from three and 39% from the field. And again, no Donald Carey. They did get Dante Harris back, who scored 13 points on five of 11 shooting and three for six from three. Aminu Muhammad also had 13 points and actually shot the ball pretty well. Five for seven for the field, misses only three-point attempt. 13 points, 12 rebounds. Late in the way, though, was Caden Rice, who really struggled against Butler. Didn't really have his best again against St. John's, but 7 of 22 from the field, but knocked down five three-pointers on 14 attempts. They got seven from Colin Holloway, six from Timothy Egoefe, who played 27 minutes, which is... The most he's played since Thanksgiving weekend. Meanwhile, Ryan Matumbo scored eight, seven points in, eight, in just eight minutes of action. Tyler Beard played 24 minutes off the bench and only scored three points. Jalen Billingsley didn't score in 11 minutes. Malcolm Wilson only played two minutes, knocking down a free throw. But St. John's back to 500 in the league at 2-2 two and two with that win. Georgetown down to 0-3 in the league. So yeah, that, and holy shit, I, you know what, with, now that we're in a groove where now you have, I feel like part of it was because I got on my soapbox a little too early regarding the officiating, which I probably should have saved that for the very end, but I mean, this is a long, long, long segment between the men and the women. You know, in post-production, you're going to hear it in two parts. But just this whole weekend recap, a fuck ton. And I apologize for that. I really do. But coming up after the break, as promised on the last episode, I got my power rankings for the men and the women. I'll start with the women. Ladies first, of course. That's coming up after this break, so don't go anywhere. I hope you're still there after that lengthy weekend recap because, I mean, I don't think you want to miss these power rankings at this juncture of the season. I feel like MLK Day is a good time for that because everyone will have played a, a decent amount of games, like at least three, I believe that's the bare minimum on both sides. So the bare minimum that a team has played in Biggie's women's basketball uh, is four. So UConn and Georgetown and Butler have each played four conference games so far. So my power rankings, as I have them right now, UConn's clearly the top dog in the conference. I mean, and they're going to be even more deadly when they get Paige Beckers back from injury in a few weeks. The second best team... I really think it's Creighton. The way they're playing right now, it's it's incredible. To me, if the season ended today, Jim Flannery would be my Big East Coach of the Year. 150%. I mean, this is a team who was picked to finish 6th in the Big East this year. Really wasn't given much of a chance to amount to anything. And here they are legitimately, right now, safely, in my opinion, in the NCAA tournament. Then I probably put DePaul three, but it's a close third. 
I mean, DePaul most likely, and if, if I'm going to call my shot correctly, most likely DePaul should overtake them when they go head-to-head -head with each other later in the year. But for right now, I, Creighton's playing like the second-best team in the conference, and they only lost by single digits to UConn at Gamble. And I think that should count for something. Marquette is my number four. And I know it's a toss-up between them and Villanova. Because Villanova, I mean, they started 0-2 without Maddie Segris. So they're 3-1 in conference with her. Their only loss came at DePaul. But in terms of overall success towards the end of the year, I think they'll end up finishing four. They might even finish third over Creighton. Because Creighton might have a chance to slip up in some games. But actually, so I mean, if I'm power ranking teams right now, I'd probably put Marquette at five and Villanova at four, actually. And the reason why is because Villanova, again, with Maddie Segrist, they're a really, really good basketball team. And we saw that. They hung tough with DePaul. They went into Milwaukee and beat Marquette. And I, I think that head-to-head -head thing is kind of like trying me justifying the logic as to why I have them above Marquette at this juncture. Not to mention, they have a winning record on the road. So Marquette at five. I would probably put, I put Seed Hall at six. I mean, they just went in and eviscerated Providence. I know they're only two and four in the conference, but they did beat Marquette. And it was at home, I know, but it was pretty convincingly. So I probably put Seton Hall at six right now because I know they're two and four, but let's be real. Their record would be two games. They'd probably be at 500 in the league right now if their games against Xavier and Butler weren't postponed. I mean, that's just me being totally honest and upfront. Seven. I got Providence. I mean, they're three and four in the league. I know they've beaten Xavier. St. John's and a Villanova team without Maddie Segrist. But at least they've shown me something where, you know, they have these good pieces around them where they can show that they can win games. Not to mention, they still have yet to lose on the road. Granted, the three teams they played on the road were Maine, Brown, and Xavier. But winning on the road, you know, it's easier said than done. I mean, it depends on who you're talking to, but still. They're 3-0 on the road. That's that's just the numbers speaking. And then I put St. John's at 8. Their only win was against Seton Hall when Seton Hall still hadn't really, you know, put everything together. Um, I mean, by the time they played... Andre Espinosa Hunter had just been suspended for the UConn game. He was just coming back off that suspension. Obviously, wasn't necessarily in rhythm. St. John's took advantage, and since then, they've lost four in a row. And their ice, I mean, they, they're 5-10 and 10 this year, and they've lost six in a row now. So, I would I, I put them at eight. Then, Georgetown at nine. Again, they, 
They hadn't played in over a month. They're one and three. I mean, they do have a road win at Providence, but I mean, they just did not look good against Marquette and DePaul. And I know those are two very, very good teams, but to me, I still think they're bottom three in the league. And then 10 and 11 are Xavier and Butler. Xavier clearly the second worst team. And then Butler, I mean, let's be real. Butler is way below Xavier in terms of, you know, like Xavier is 10, but it's not like Butler is like, I mean, yes, they're only one place behind him in the standings, but talent-wise, it's, for me, farther than that. So those are the women's power rankings. On the men's side, okay, we clearly know who the top dog is, and that's Villanova. You know, they got crushed by Creighton in the Big East opener and have turned it around since. Six, six wins in a row, and... Two of those wins were by 30 or more. And they've beaten some good teams. They've they swept Xavier. They also you know came back. I know they also beat Seton Hall on the road. And I know being DePaul isn't that big of an accomplishment. I mean, they were down five at the break and then did what Villanova does best dominate in the second half. And, you know, they were plus 20 in the second half. So Villanova, clearly the number one team in the conference. I don't even think it's close. This is where it gets interesting. Who's two and who's three? To me, uh, it's tough. But to me, you know what? I really, really think it's Xavier. Xavier's only two losses in conference this year have come against Villanova. And they were up at halftime at Finneran Pavilion. And they just didn't finish. And then they got down big at the Cinta Center, rallied, made it a game, and unfortunately came up short. And not to mention their depth makes them the second best team in the conference. And yes, even better. Yes, even better than Providence. Providence fans, if you want to come at me for this, go right ahead. But I, I have my reasoning. It's not like I'm trying to slight Providence for whatever reason. If there's any reason to slight them, is how they looked at Marquette. I know Marquette's on fire, but Providence lost there by 32. I know it's without AJ Reeves, but still, you shouldn't be losing a Big East game by 30 plus. No matter how bad you are. Yeah, and, that, and that's even for you, Georgetown. It's even for you. I mean, even though DePaul, the five losses they've had in conference this year, they really didn't, I mean, other than the game at home against Providence, they hadn't really gotten killed in a game. Because they were up five on Nova at the half and lost, yes, they lost by 15, but still. They were getting killed at Butler, but only lost by four. And really, I mean, they had their chance to come back and maybe even overtake them, take the lead, but didn't. They beat Seton Hall at home. They lost at Marquette in a game where they were down just one at the break. They lost by five at St. John's. So, I don't know. Just for me, in the Big East... I just don't think there's any excuse to lose by 30 plus. 
no matter how good or how bad a team is. But I'm going to venture to say, yeah, I'm going to put Providence at three. Although Marquette, with the way they've been playing, I mean, they'd be higher up on the power rankings. But I'm I'm just over, again, just looking at the body of work rather than just, you know, like, okay, what's happened in the last one to two weeks? I'm looking at the overall body of work here. Providence is my three right now. I mean, they're four and one in the league. And they're only lost at Marquette. But, I mean, they went on the road and beat UConn. They beat Seton Hall at home, granted, without Ike Obiago and Tyree Samuel, and with seven, seven, a seven-man rotation, and then they used an eighth just to spell some guys briefly, though. And then they beat St. John's at home when Julian Champagny was god awful and couldn't hit the broadside of a barn, and they won at DePaul. Okay, you know, 4-1, and one, good record. But right now, I can only put them at 3. That just, that's just me being honest. So this is where things kind of get interesting. I would venture, because, I mean, because you have some transitive property things where, like, okay, certain teams won some games where, like, you know, like Seton Hall's 2-4, and four, but... The four games they've lost. In conference, not by a lot. Their four losses are by a combined 16 points. One of their two conference wins was by 15. And then, you know, there are some matchups that we haven't seen yet. I mean, the reason why I put Providence at three is also because I we haven't seen them since January 8th. And we're not going to see them till January 20th when they play Georgetown at home. As I mentioned, Providence's strength of schedule, not nearly as strong. I mean, yes, they beat Seton Hall. Yes, they beat, they played Marquette. Yes, they played UConn. But I mean, St. John's, eh. DePaul, eh. And then they come out of the pause playing Georgetown, eh. And then they go play Butler at home, eh. And then, then they go play Xavier. That's where we're, that's the real test we're going to see. Okay, what real, what's the team really made of? So down the line, that's what I'm looking forward to. Now, four and five is tricky. Because I mean, UConn is two and two. Marquette's on fire at four and three. You know, Creighton's two and two, but they've stumbled in their last two games. St. John's is two and two, but their only two wins are against DePaul and Georgetown. And St. Hall's two and four. I mean, I think four through eight is is tightly contested. I would probably put and I, like it, it, I'm just looking at this and like it, it's just like so hard to process who's four, who's five, who's six, seven, eight, so on and so forth. To me, 
it just really, really pains me because, I mean, UConn beat Marquette. And Creighton beat Marquette. UConn beat St. John's. Seton Hall beat UConn. Marquette beats... So, I mean, I guess by transitive property, I mean, Marquette, again, their three losses came at Xavier, at home against UConn, and at home against Creighton. I mean, it's... Again, it's all really tough to assess. I probably put UConn at four. Because, I mean, they lost tight games against Providence and Seton Hall. Their wins are against Marquette and St. John's. So I probably put UConn at four. And then I put Marquette five. Because Marquette lost to Creighton in double overtime, and that really, you know, pushed them to turn the corner. And get on this four-game win streak. And I mean, here's the thing: two of the game, two of the four games Marquette's won were against DePaul and Georgetown, who are my ten and eleven. Which, shit, I gave that away. I'm sorry. <laughs> I mean, but but like, I mean, at what point wasn't that known? But so I probably put venture to put Marquette at five. At six, listen, Seton Hall, I know they're two and four in conference, but, you know, there's a lot to consider. I mean, they lost to Providence and Villanova with basically seven players. And again, without Obiagu and without Samuel. I mean, I would venture to put them at six. Chances are, and that's where I'm going to put them. Because I'm trying to take everything into consideration. Their four losses are by a combined 16 points. All right. And then I put Creighton at seven. I know they beat Villanova, but that seems like so long ago. And Villanova essentially proved that it was a fluke by. <laughs> grilling them at Thinner and Pavilion. Not to mention Creighton, I know they're 500 in conference. They've lost to Villanova and Xavier. And they beat Villanova. And then they won at Marquette double overtime. But, again, we've barely seen Creighton at all this year. Well, in conference, that is. And then I put St. John's at 8. Again, their only wins are against DePaul and Georgetown. They barely got by DePaul. Should they have won at UConn? You bet. And they also lost at Providence. And, you know, had Julian Champagny played much better in that game and shot the ball better, St. John's might have won. But that's not what happened. Then Butler 9. I know Butler... And the, 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 the my whole reasoning behind it is because of the fact that, you know, they beat DePaul and they also won at Georgetown. And I know those are two not great wins. But I mean, at least they have two wins. I know Seton Hall and Xavier both crushed them. And Villanova just, like, essentially took them behind the shed. But, I mean, DePaul's one and five. So that's why I put him at 10. And Georgetown clearly is the worst team in the Big East. I, I think that should, that should go without saying. 
with or without Donald Carey, this team is just abysmal. They are abysmal. So, I mean, listen, if y'all got disagreements or anything, listen, I want to hear them. I want to hear where you guys have the biggies ranked. And, I mean, I'm just looking at it as I see it right now because I think the way each of those power rankings are, it I, it's not indicative necessarily of where I think they will end up at year's end. Because there are some teams that have had a much tougher strength of schedule, whereas others have had a weaker strength of schedule in conference. Like Providence, their strength of schedule is going to ramp up. I mean, they might not be able to make up games against Seton Hall and against Creighton, maybe even against UConn, like the ones they've missed so far. But, I mean, they do got to play Xavier twice. They got to play Marquette in a rematch. They got to... I mean, they'll probably they'll they'll get one game against Creighton at the very least. I feel like that much is true. And then they they still got to play Villanova twice. And who knows, Villanova's. I feel like they have a better chance of sweeping them than splitting. That's just, that's just my two cents. Like Xavier's already gotten Villanova out of the way. They are going to have an easier strength of schedule moving forward. I feel like Seton Hall. I mean, yeah, they got still got to play Xavier twice. They still got to go to Nova. They still got to go to UConn. Um, they still got to get, you know, they've still got to play Marquette at home. They still got Creighton twice. You know, there's a lot of factors to consider. I mean, I'm just, the power rankings that you hear, again, are not indicative of where I think these teams will finish at year's end. Just to make that clear and that you guys understand me and that there's no hidden meaning or whatever. All right, but coming out of the break again, you know, I'm obviously going to be making some midweek picks and for the first time this year, we're going to see these a couple other times, but I believe this might be the first time this is being done maybe ever in the biggies where you have teams facing each other back to back. And when I say back to back, you know, facing each other twice in the span of three days, home and home. The first of which will come up Tuesday and Thursday this week, Butler versus UConn. And I've got a couple people joining me uh, representing each of those schools. So my two guests will be representing Butler. It'll be Henry Breedmeyer. And from UConn, it will be Michael Solomon. Those two guys will join me to preview that home and home coming up next here on the Igloo. For the first time this season, it's a home-and-home coming up with the Butler Bulldogs taking on the UConn Huskies. Last year, the Huskies swept the Dogs, each win coming by a dozen points. And again, they will go home-and-home this week. Tomorrow at the XL Center in Hartford, and then Thursday running it back at Hinkle. And joining me to preview this home-and-home, I got representatives on the side, both sides for Butler and UConn from the Butler Collegian. Henry Breedemeyer, and from the UConn affiliate of the Sideline Sports Network, Michael Solomon. Guys, uh, welcome to the Igloo. Thank you. Happy to be here. So, obviously, both teams are in interesting spots. Butler, they're two and three in conference. Their wins come against DePaul and Georgetown, who are at the bottom of the standings. 
and coming off a very ugly loss um, at Villanova where they not only got beat badly, but it was a 40-point defeat, 82-42 um, at Wells Fargo. Um, Henry, I know we were talking about this before you know, recording, but you know that had to rank up there as the ugliest loss you've ever seen from a Butler team in your time covering the team at the Collegian. Yeah, easily. It, it was easily the worst worst loss that I've I've been a part of. Um, yeah, it's actually the worst Butler defeat since 1994. Um, so to put that into, I mean, that is, it's, it was just a terrible, terrible loss. They had Ken or, or my guy, Ken Palm. I absolutely love looking at Ken Palm stuff said that's the worst defensive efficiency that Butler's had since the website was created. So just all around the, the worst Butler performance I've seen, you know, Villanova is a great team. We all know that. Um, but losing by 40 in conference is, is pretty unacceptable. So. So on the opposite side of the coin, UConn, uh, you know, they were in a pretty lengthy COVID pause. Uh, they were supposed to play Butler on new year's day, but obviously they were still in said pause, but coming out of the pause, you know, they were one and one in conference. They lost a tough one in overtime at Seton hall, but they redeemed themselves winning it overtime against St. John's and they didn't play this weekend because of Providence being in a COVID pause. So, you know, how much does this extra period of rest help the Huskies and also just in general, just, you know, the overall better feeling of play and also being coming in on the right foot with coming off that overtime win after losing in overtime in their last game, Michael. Yeah. So what I, I, I wasn't at the, the media um, meeting today, but from what Dan Hurley is talking about, they're really happy that they had the pause. Um, as you probably know, UConn has had a myriad of injuries, notably two key, two of our three key players, uh, you know, Tyrese Martin and Adama Sanogo have been out. Plus we've had COVID on top of it. So we have not really had even a full team to practice for several weeks. So this whole week, he said, number one, we're hundred percent healthy, which is the best news. I think any of us have heard in, in, in the nation in a long time, in the Yukon nation in a long time. Uh, that's one thing. And then secondly, it sounds like Adamo's uh, abdominal issues are starting to dissipate or uh, gone away. I believe Tyrese will be wearing a cast in his um, right hand for the rest of the year, but he's played with it for a while and he's done well with it. So the fact that we're healthy, I think it's just really good. And I think the, the layoff actually helped us. So coming into this um, home and home, I mean, again, I don't think this has ever been done in the history of the Big East where, you know, you had uh, the two teams match up one day and then two days later turn around and have the rematch um, at the other team's place. So, I mean, essentially this is uncharted territory um, for the conference and especially for the two teams that are part of it, which are the teams you cover, Butler and UConn. Um, so from your personal perspectives, Obviously, like I said, uncharted territory, never been encountered before. But, you know, how do you expect your teams to, you know, handle this kind of situation where, you know, you know, go to, you know, play in Hartford one day and then hop the plane and both teams are in Indianapolis a couple nights later. Henry, I'll start with you. Yeah, it's it's a difficult situation um, for Butler, especially coming off that 40 point loss. It's demoralizing. And but I think that the team can maybe kind of rally around it because they're all going to be together. They're going to be forced to be together because they're still on this road. They're on this three game road trip. Um, so maybe try to get some momentum back in that first matchup. But I think the matchup 
for me personally that Butler should really be focusing on is the one at home because Butler is much better at home. They've always been better at Hinkle Fieldhouse in front of those fans. So I think I would expect Butler to lose this game on the road. Um, I would hope they play better than they did against Villanova. But I think that the game at home um, at Hinkle Fieldhouse will be much much closer um, than than the one on the road, but I, it's it's a really interesting thing for both coaches because how do you prepare? Like, do you throw everything out in the first game and then kind of just make minor adjustments in the second? I think it'll be really interesting to see the differences between those two games because they're played so close together. Michael, piggyback off that. Yeah. So as Henry and I were talking, like right before the show here. Um, I would rather not be facing uh, Butler after that really tough loss. I mean, I think this is the kind of moment that um, kind of is a slap in the face to a team. And it, it kind of tests their, um, their respect for themselves, their school and, every, and their coaching and everything else. And I think that actually this is a better moment for Butler than they may imagine. But that said, yeah, it's, it's challenging. I think UConn's in a good place. They've had some rest. They've been able to do you know, five on five practices, which they hadn't done, I think in like three weeks. So I think there's the rust is starting to get out. I think they'll do, I think this is an okay thing, but once again, facing the same team twice in a week is, um, is complicating. And I can't even imagine what's going through the coach's mind. It's, and I think Henry put it best. It's like, exactly. What do you, what do you put in the reserve tank for game two? Because for argument's sake, UConn might have a really good game um, tomorrow. But what kind of different wrinkles do you bring? And how do you, what do you do different with Sanago? And I, and I think it's good for the, actually, I think it's good NCAA um, tournament practice, um, to be honest with you. Like, I think they're going to they're gonna start seeing really different looks from the same type of team. That's a good thing. Um, but I think UConn's in a good place right now, particularly with their health. And certainly having um, a healthy Sonogo is so integral and key to what we do. We're an inside-out team. Yeah, more importantly, I mean, Sonogo, I mean, rebounding the ball in his last two games, he's been phenomenal. I believe he's had, I think, 34 rebounds in his last two games. It might be 35. I mean, it's unreal how good he's been on the glass the last couple of games and now that he has even more rest. And against a Butler team, I mean, granted, Sonogo's not tall at 6'9", uh, I mean, Bryce Golden's also 6'9", but the way he bullies people down low, I mean, that could provide a big matchup nightmare for uh, Bryce Squared and uh, Golden and Enzi. Yeah, I like to think it could create a matchup problem for a lot of teams, actually. He's um, one of those classic Big East guys who's undersized, but he's 6'9 wide as, as much as he's 6'9 tall. Um, he, he also has tremendous footwork. Um, He's got soft hands, puts it in the basket very gently. Um, I think the biggest issue we have with Sonogo right now is that he just needs to become even better at doing the in and out, you know, inside out sort of stuff. Sometimes he gets it and he goes right. He'll do three moves, but he never looks for the three point shot. He's starting to do that now. And I know that the team's been working with him on it, but if he becomes that sort of inside out kind of guy, I think he could be one of the best centers in the, you know, back to the, back to the basket centers in the country. Sure. Um, so another, I feel like another thing in terms of, you know, important X factors, I feel like for Butler, 
I feel like the narrative is going to be for them to essentially steal one of those two games. And obviously the more likely outcome being where they could steal is on their home court at Hinkle Fieldhouse because we all know the powers of Hinkle magic at times. Mm. So um, with that being said, you know, in order for Butler to steal one, um, you know, there could be a number of contributing factors that could help them do that. But what would you say is the most important X factor of them all in order for them to find a way to steal a split? Yeah. So, I mean, as you were talking about with Sonogo, like Butler is the worst rebounding team in the Big East by a mile. Um, and they just played somehow the second worst rebounding team in Villanova and got out rebounded by almost 15. So Butler is very, very poor on the glass. So I, I don't even, I can't even expect that to change um, that we've played with that with that handicap almost all season. And we still found ways to win against quality teams. So I'm not super worried about that. For me, it's the perimeter defense. Um, It was terrible against Villanova and it was fantastic against Georgetown. Uh, We held Georgetown's top two leading scorers to like three of 25 from the field. Um, And granted Georgetown was, was limited. Uh, They had two other starters out, but that's the kind of, um, defensive tenacity that they need to play with because they were all over those two guys. So I want to see that like Butler needs, they cannot let the other team get hot from three. Uh, that has been when, when that happens, not only are they getting hot from three, but they're also getting points underneath. Um, so, <laughs> so then it just be, becomes like a defensive nightmare. Um, so I think defending the perimeter and then just having an, average scoring day i i can't really expect butler to just shoot lights out that's not what this team is about um if they do they will probably win but they don't like they've not really had a game this season where they've just shot the ball incredibly so that's not something that we can really expect from them so this solid perimeter defense have a good game on the boards don't let sonogo just go crazy get 20 rebounds um and then score the ball efficiently get to the free throw line that's that's kind of the keys i think for butler any certain players you're looking to you know really take a big step uh, up in this game that could make a big difference yeah i think as we were talking before we started recording i think chuck harris is kind of the x factor um when he's hot he's hot when he's not he's he's virtually non-existent um so when we've played our best, like against Oklahoma in that overtime win in Norman, he had 26 points. That's the kind of performance that we want to see from Chuck Harris. Um, and to go off of that, I think Jair Bolden too. If if we can get a hot half from him or just a hot game where he shoots the ball efficiently from three, those are huge moments for us because Chuck and Jair, they're, they're really our only really good three-point shooters besides Bryce Enzi, but he's, he's not a volume shooter. He's going to take two or three and, and make one or two. Um, so I, I think getting, getting Chuck or Jair, or hopefully both is really what, what we're looking to see to get, to have a good offensive game for Butler. So on the UConn side of things, they're obviously looking to sweep this thing, you know, like in, I know it's going to be easier said than done because Butler plays teams tough. Usually, I mean, I feel like the loss to Villanova is a bit of a, you know, a, 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 almost like a, uh, a the black sheep, if you will, because it, that really doesn't happen where they look that bad in a game. But for UConn, in order for them to take care of business and win both of these games, you know, 
we talk about Sonogo. I mean, I feel like he's going to get his no matter what. But, mm-hmm. you know, what are some of the other important contributing factors that UConn will have to, you know, succeed in? Um, and, and some of the things that we've seen in, in the games that they've won, um, especially with the way they started the year in nine and two. Uh, but yeah, but so Michael, I definitely want to know, you know, on the UConn side, what are the things they have to do well um, in order to, like I said, take care of business and win both legs of this uh, home and home? Well, what makes UConn what I believe is an elite team, okay, and and could go very, very far in the tournament if all things kind of break right, is is their rebounding, absolutely. Their defense is, it's, it's hard to look at national statistics at this point because they've been injured, you know, the, the games have been kind of um, odd and oddly spaced, and we haven't really had a full team. But I think nationally, defensively, we're, gonna, we're top five uh, or as good as any club out there, certainly. And certainly on the block shot side, because we just have a lot of height. I mean, we, we, we intimidate teams um, on the inside, although we've been torched the last couple of games by individual players. It's kind of weird for as good as our defense has been. You know, Champagne hit 27 against us. Um, uh, uh, Kadadri uh, Richmond at Seton Hall laid 27 on us. We couldn't stop him. And he's done nothing since. In his next four games, he's done nothing since. So we've had our breakdowns, but we're very, very good on our interior defense. Um, I think what what we need to do is and get better, and it's interesting because Henry talked about it, is we're not a great three-point shooting team, but we can be at times. Yeah. Y'all went 14 for 23 in Newark. Yes. And that's the quirkiness of it. We did very, very good against St. Bonaventure in Newark. We did great against Auburn in, um, uh, in the Bahamas, for example. We, we certainly can do it. And again, I think so much of it is around having a Sonogo, getting it into him, and then getting the spacing right, and then having him kick it out. And when we have that, a, a kid like Tyler Polly, for example, who's a kid off the bench, he's a, a sixth-year kid, um, would like to go pro. He's a, he's a streaky, streaky shooter. He'll, he'll hit seven in a row. He also can miss four in a row, too. So that's a, um, an interesting um, dilemma we have. But if, if we can get our, our perimeter game going, we're really very good. I mean, that's when, that's when all the gears are cranking, and I think we could get to that uh, third weekend of the, the NCAA tournament. Um, we also don't have a gr- We also don't have more than one or two playmakers. We have RJ Cole, who's a terrific point guard and, and, and can make stuff happen himself. We really don't have a second playmaker outside of like a, an Adamas and Ovo. We, we create stuff, um, maybe in, in dribble drive and, and hope for some rebounds and stuff like that. So getting some better shot making, doing better on the perimeter is I think where, where we want to get to over time. Yeah, of course. Uh, yeah, so the 14 for 23 game I was alluding to was actually against Seton Hall um, in Newark. And yet. Oh, somehow, correct. Right. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I mean, that, I was flabbergasted by that because I know UConn really isn't known for the three, but yet they just went off in that game. Um, it, I mean, I still think they lost is kind of shocking to me, at least. But um, obviously, you know, the game still got to be played. And on paper, I know, obviously, UConn is going to be the favorite in both of those games and I mean the really funny thing is the last time these teams played 
Bryce Golden in a loss had like a career day. It was like basically it was the Bryce Golden show for Butler and not really much anybody else. Um, I mean, who knows? Bryce might match up well with UConn and he might do some damage yet again. Uh, but in the end, um, you know, what, what are your overall outlooks? I mean, you can make your prediction on, you know, like who, you know, who wins both games, you know, like one, you kind of getting a sweep, a split, or even the other way around by uh, some miracle, but you know, what's your overall outlook on what the outcomes of the game will be. And, you know, if you can even elaborate on, you know, deficits, if one might be a blowout or the one tight, you know, if you could, you know, go to town on that. Uh, Henry, I'll start with you. Yeah. So I think with, with the first game, um, in, in Connecticut, I I don't really see Butler winning that game. Um, at coming off that just brutal loss, um, where where they just got dominated in just every phase of the game, I think they'll play much better. Uh, to be quite honest with you, but I still I still think to compete with a team as good as UConn and and really the top tier teams in the Big East, Butler has to play a near perfect game. Um, and I, I don't, I don't really see that happening on the road with just a day of rest. Um, so I'd say probably a 15, 10 point loss, um, in Connecticut, I think they'll play better, um, cause they have to, uh, and quite frankly, Laval is coaching for his job right now, um, because 10 and 15 last year, this season is not looking like it's going to end in an NCAA tournament berth. Um, it, it might not even end in an NIT berth the way that this thing is going right now. So that's not the standard at Butler. Um, so I think, I think he's really coached for this job. And a lot of these players are seniors and they're not going to play in the NBA. They're not going to play in the G league. They got to come together. This is, this might be the last time they play legitimate basketball. So I think, I think they know that they have to turn this around. Um, but I still don't think they get the win in Connecticut. Um, but in, in Hinkle, I think it might be a different story. I don't know if I would, I wouldn't bet on a Butler win, but I think it's possible. I think, I definitely think it's possible. Either way, I think it's going to be a close game. Um, I think it's going to be a close game, uh, but I still think Connecticut would probably come away with it um, three out of four times. But hey, Hinkle magic is something. It really is. So maybe, maybe Butler hits some clutch shots at the end and takes that one home. Well, Michael, now, uh, now shifting to you, I mean, I feel like the expectations this week, and I'm assuming that's what you believe is going to happen. Yeah, I mean, we're an interesting team, and, you know, we're a soup, and it's still cooking and coming together, and the flavors are coming together in so many ways. Um, I, I, I do think we'll win pretty handily um at connecticut i think i think that game is like set for us to do well but I, I, it's, it's interesting though like there's a lot of games where we'll get out to a 10 12 point lead usually in the second half we seem to be pulling away and then they just seem to step back they don't they don't step on the neck you know we have the yukon women which so traditionally would if they got a 10 point lead they were you know the other team was done for the Yukon men, it's a little more challenging for them, I think, on that, um, on that end. Um, so it'll be interesting to see if they can really make a, um, a big, significant win, you know, um, on Tuesday. Um, Thursday's kind of a different game, um, I think, in many ways. And, and I agree. I think coming back, um, the, the team has to stay focused. I think we win, but I think it's a lot closer. And I definitely think if they get a good home crowd, uh, we haven't played on the road in a little bit. Um, I think Butler can, 
I think we win both, but I'll tell you, I would be very worried to play them in the NC uh, or the, the Big East tournament and having to play them a third time. Um, that's never fun and that's never easy. Yeah, especially, I mean, because, I mean, look what happened in the Big East tournament last year. Butler really had nothing to lose, and Xavier, when they played them in the Big East tournament, they had everything to lose. And Xavier got onto a big lead, and Butler is like, you know what? We got nothing to lose. You know, like, let's just go out there and, you know, ruin their fun. And that's exactly what they did. And they basically yeah. knocked Xavier out of tournament contention. So who knows what can happen in March, but that seems like so long away. I mean, it's nearly uh, just a little under two months. Uh, but so for me, I'm going to go, I'm going to take UConn by, you know, I'm probably going to say like, maybe like 18. I think, you know, like, I think that 18 will probably come by like, you know, later baskets in the game. I think that 12 to 15 sounds about right. That's about uh, where and, I am too. Yeah. Yeah. And then on the road, I think my, I would put the hard number with UConn winning at like six. Um, and then I feel like the high, I really think it's going to be a single digit game with the maximum being a nine point win. But again, I wouldn't be surprised if they end up, you know, I put the high number at 12, but like, I would say six to nine, I think is a good, decent range, but I'm more on the low end going with six. But again, you know, anytime you have a battle, battle of dogs in the big East, it's a lot of fun. And not to mention Butler blues, adorable. Um, I mean, honestly, I'm hoping to get. <laughs> I'm hoping to get a Big East tournament credential because I want I want to see Butler Blue in person. Because uh, the other times I've been at the Big East tournament, I didn't really get to see him. My senior year, we played Butler, and but Blue was on the end of the court in MSG security. You know how uptight they could be sometimes. I could not get near the good boy, unfortunately. Uh, yeah. But that was when it was it was the Butler Blue the third, I believe, at that point, or I think. Yeah, this, probably. This, this is four years ago. So yeah, that yeah that was. That was trip as we like to call him. That's funny though. I actually, I lived in the same building as this blue uh, last year. Um, so that was, I got to see him almost every day uh, and he would bark at me as I walked in and stuff. So that was, yeah, I got to see blue quite a bit. And, and not to mention, I, I, you know, it's really funny. And one of my friends is like a dog expert and he recommended that because of just a bunch of personality questions, he recommended that ironically, I get a Husky and, Jonathan's a good boy too. I mean, every dog in the Big East is a good boy. Even Jack from Georgetown. Um, <laughs> even though I remember freshman year, even though from even though freshman year, I heard a story that uh, Trip might have. I think he peed on the court my freshman year. I, that would not surprise me. <laughs> um, unfortunately, I didn't. I didn't get to witness that. But hey, anytime we have a battle of the good boys, it's always fun. I mean, who? If you don't like dogs, you don't have a soul. So again, Bulldogs, Huskies. Tuesday night at the XL Center in Hartford, Thursday night at Hinkle Fieldhouse, Henry Breedemeyer from the Butler Collegian, Michael Solomon from the UConn affiliate for the Sideline Sports Network. Thanks for the time and um, definitely look forward to seeing y'all hopefully down the line, Big East tournament time, um, whether it be in person or virtual, um, look forward to catching up around then. Absolutely. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thank you very much. Loved it. Good luck, Henry. You too. Well, the rest of the episode for the Igloo, including my midweek picks, not just UConn Butler, coming up after the break, so don't go anywhere. Welcome back inside the Igloo. Let's talk about these midweek picks. Um, I mean, so, so what you're going to hear are the midweek picks, and then after this, uh, to wrap up the show, I know I touched on it earlier, but, man, I, got, I just want to go more in-depth on my whole tirade about recent Big East officiating. So starting on 
the women's side on MLK Day, 5 o'clock ESPN 2, number 10 UConn is paying a visit to the Pacific Northwest, visiting the Oregon Ducks, who have been a little disappointing this year at 9-5. and five. However, in their most recent game, they're coming off an overtime upset over Arizona, who was 7th in the country. You know, I really think that UConn, now that, again, they're playing more games without Beckers and getting used to playing without her, I know, like, again, there's not really much to gain when you're playing Butler and Xavier, but, I mean, at least Creighton pushed them a little over a week ago. But I think when you play a team like Oregon, and I know Oregon battle-tested. They just beat Arizona, as mentioned before. And they hung tough at number two Stanford recently. I mean, man, they've had some ugly losses. Like, you see Davis beat them. I mean, South Florida and South Carolina aren't bad losses, but I mean, UC Davis is just a very bad, ugly loss. They lost at K-State. So, UConn, I think, is the better team, even with even without Paige Beckers. I think UConn wins a tight one at Matthew Knight Arena. But shifting gears to the women's, uh, shifting gears to Wednesday night conference games, Creighton at Butler. I mean, let's be real, Creighton is going to make Butler look bad. Well, I mean, Butler's probably made themselves look bad, but I mean, I feel like a a dick for saying that. But. I mean, Creighton's on a roll right now. Again, they're 7-1 in the league, and Emma Ronzik just had a monster weekend where she scored 57 points in two games. Chances are she's going to feast against Butler. So the the Blue Jays are going to win big. And then Seton Hall hosting St. John's. I mean, St. John's is ice cold. They're... They've lost six in a row. They're five and ten overall at Seton Hall. You know, they got their swagger back winning big at Providence. Especially in Walsh. I'm going to take Coach B and the Pirates over Coach Tartamella and the Red Storm. So, on the men's side. Tuesday, Providence Seton Hall is postponed, unfortunately. Um, I was going to take Seton Hall beating Providence. Although, I think it really would have been a tight game had both teams, you know, like, let's just take into accountability. Like, let's just say... Minus COVID and just, you know, just injuries alone. I think Seton Hall would have beaten Providence, but it would have been awfully tight. Now, Butler at UConn, as mentioned, I'm going to take UConn winning at home first. And that's going to be at the XL Center. I thought it was going to be at Gamble, but it will be at XL. And then on Wednesday, doubleheader on FS1 starting with St. John's at Creighton in Omaha. I mean, St. John's, the only teams they've beaten in conference were DePaul and Georgetown. Creighton, I know they're 2-2, two and two, but I think with the way they started off against Xavier, I think that's something to build off of. Because Xavier, to me, is legitimately the number two team in the conference. I really believe that. And I'm going to take Creighton winning, although St. John's will make it competitive. It will be a close game. I like the way St. John's has competed against Providence and UConn in losses. I just think Creighton and 
again, St. John's just doesn't do well in certain environments, and Omaha, Nebraska is one of them. So I'm going to give Creighton the win over St. John's. 8 o'clock on CBS Sports Network. It's Josh Hardnight at Finner Pavilion as Villanova hosts Marquette. Listen, Marquette's red hot. Four wins in a row. Villanova's even hotter at six wins in a row. I think Villanova wins. And again, I've learned this the hard way. Nobody wins at the Finn. Hey, I rhymed there. I just realized that. Especially on Josh Hartnight. Hell no. Give me the Wildcats winning. And then Xavier at DePaul. You know, DePaul, I mean, they're, they're riding the high of that win against Seton Hall. But Xavier is a next, another step up. They're deep. They're talented. They're big. They're physical. I mean, they're not as physical as the teams of the Chris Mack era, you know, where, you know, you have Matt Stainbrook and James Farr and Jalen Reynolds bodying you down low. But they're still nonetheless a physical team, whereas DePaul, and, and you know, you you can only hope for DePaul, you know, that Javon Freeman Liberty is okay and going to be 100% for this game. If he's not, that that could leave DePaul in big trouble. I think regardless, Xavier wins, but without Freeman Liberty, uh, it could get bad. And Xavier, by the way, they haven't lost in Chicago since early January 2015. And then Thursday, Georgetown makeup game at Providence. Supposed to play December 22nd, so they're playing this one a little over four weeks later. Providence will win this game against Georgetown. I know it's going to be interesting to see how they come out of the pause 12 days later. Well, 12 days without a game, I should say. I'm going to take Providence because, I mean, they should be thanking their lucky stars that they're coming out of the pause against Georgetown and not against Seton Hall. They should be thanking their lucky stars for that. Because if there's anyone to get your feet wet again against, it's Georgetown. Not saying that Providence fans have it easy, but you do realize that there's a significant drop-off between in talent between Seton Hall and Georgetown, right? Just want you guys to be aware of that. That's all. And then UConn at Butler. UConn should finish the sweep and win for the second year in a row. Well, meaning sweep for the second year in a row. So that... So those are the midweek picks. Just want to do do that nice and smoothly. But now, all right, time for me to get back on the soapbox and plop it back down on the floor. Let's talk about the Big East officiating again. You know, in, in the years past, I remember when I was growing up, there are certain officials that you learn by name, not because of how good they are, but because of how bad they are. I mean, maybe Tim Higgins and Jimber maybe got a bad rap because they made questionable calls. I remember my parents actually telling me a story about how before I was born, they went to a game at the Dome and Jim Burr was refing a game and obviously wasn't calling the best of calls and didn't have his best stuff refing that night. And they told me that a, fl- a fan near them exclaimed, and I quote, I'm Jim Burr and I'm an asshole. Again, I didn't say it. That's what they told me this guy said. And the referees, and even umpires in baseball, the referees, if you know them by name, more often than not, it's because they're really, really bad. 
And that one referee in the Big East now is James fucking Breeding. This man should have been on everyone's shit list after the 2019 Big East tournament debacle between Seton Hall and Marquette. On both sides. Not favoring Seton Hall and not even favoring Marquette. He was shit the whole goddamn night. And he lost control of the game and started calling fouls like fucking crazy. And what's happened since this year, it's been even worse. There have been games where there have been officiating conundrums. But not since that debacle against Marquette. Well, not since that debacle between the Pirates and the Golden Eagles in the Garden back in March of 2019 has the Big East released a statement regarding its officiating. And we're and we're almost 48 hours now removed from that bullshit in Milwaukee. Not a goddamn peep. I'm not even saying this from a scene hall perspective. Because this garbage happened earlier in the week between St. John's and UConn. Where it was a breeding of breeding-led game. And they let it get out of control at the end because they're just making calls willy-nilly because they feel like they can and need to. And anytime there, there's a breeding crew there's a breeding-led game. The expectation is that it's not going to be good. And again, the Big East is known for always having the highest of standards. From the players to the coaches to the spectators and and especially the officials. A lot of great Big East refs have come through. And yeah, and that includes Jim Burr, that asshole. And I say that jokingly. Even Tim Higgins who has had his fair share of, of screw-ups. But for James Breen to keep being put on Big East games, despite the fact that he's terrible, that doesn't make sense. Not to mention, I know that coaches have their preferences about who they do and don't want on their games. And James Breeding keeps getting Big East games He even got a Final Four assignment in 2019. But what happened? He put himself in the spotlight because he felt like he needed to. That's not what you should do as an official. You're an official because you love the game of basketball and you want to oversee it and facilitate it so that the game can continue to thrive. You don't do it for yourself and for fame. You don't do it to draw attention to yourself. Jay's breeding is doing that. He's drawing attention to himself. Every time he takes the goddamn court, he draws attention to himself. He takes way too long on his his reviews. He takes his sweet time because the longer eyes are drawn on him, the better he feels. Because who wouldn't want that kind of attention? But it's that just that continued garbage that keeps happening. And not to mention, I've seen James Breeding rescind a technical on Jay Wright. Called the technical and then took it back. You can't do that. 
That's unacceptable. And James Breeding, based on his track record, not just with the Marquette game, but the St. John's UConn game, and more importantly, after that Marquette Seton Hall debacle in the Garden, he should have never been able to get even near a Big East game ever again. And here we are almost three years later, and we still got to put up with this bullshit. And you know it's bad when the resentment and hatred for Jane's breeding around the Big East is universal. And and what happens? He doesn't get to be held accountable. When coaches screw up in things they say, same with players and things they do wrong, they get held accountable. They get suspended. I'm not expecting you to suspend referees. But you gotta know that a referee who grossly mismanages games to that extent, and that is Cruz mismanaged games to that extent, it's not just breeding, but the fact that he's the crew chief over around two other guys and brings them down to the level where, because Matt Potter is a decent ref. Paul Zellick is a, is a decent ref. And Brady brings them down because he sucks that much. He sucks. He's not meant for the Big East. He's meant for the SEC and the Big 12. He, ain't, he doesn't belong in the Big East. Because there are legitimate Northeast guys who know what they're doing here. Brian O'Connell, Jeffrey Anderson, even Roger Ayers. That those are three that I can think of. And I'm trying to just think about some of the other Big East refs that I actually respect enough that I would say, you know what? I want these guys on our on my game. And Pat Driscoll is another. You know, Bo Borowski is another show guy, but at least, but at least not to the, like Bo Borowski, yeah, he might be not the greatest, but at least, and again, I read an article on The Athletic where coach, you know, there was a wide survey done about officials in the NCAA. Reading was one of the officials listed and one, and the quote listed under him was that he was unapproachable and that you can't talk to the guy. You know what that tells me as an official? When James Breeding fucks up, he doesn't want to be held accountable. And if you do hold him accountable, he'll punish you for it. He'll tee you up. And he might even throw you out. So what does that tell you? That James Breeding has no business refing Biggie's basketball. Period. I probably exerted more energy over that than I probably should have, but coming from someone who is, granted, not at that high of a level, that is a basketball official, and seeing such such mismanagement, and again, the mismanagement at the end of the Seton Hall Marquette game, it wasn't breeding directly, but because he was the crew chief, to me, he's responsible for the other two guys. 
Matt Potter calling a foul on that is one thing because this is a judgment call, like I said before. But for hit for breeding and Potter to not know time score situation, to not know that after a missed free throw and a timeout where they had 60 seconds to go over amongst each other what the situation was is that my, and that whoever was inbounding the ball for Seton Hall couldn't run the baseline. They didn't do that. And what happened? Paul Zellick missed it for his miles that he could run the baseline and he runs the baseline because usually they listen to the officials because they know they're supposed to know the rules. And what happened? And that's something you get right. You should get right. 10 out of 10. Not 9 out of 10. Not 9.5 out of 10. 10 out of 10. Because that's the easy shit you get right. There is no way on God's green earth they should have ever let that happen. And there's no way on God's green earth that James Breeding should ever be allowed near a Big East basketball court ever again. I think I speak for everyone in the Big East when I say enough's enough. This needs to stop now. And it also doesn't think it helps that, you know, there you can email a lot of people in the Big East front office. Hell, you can even even email Commissioner Val Ackerman to voice your displeasure about it. But you know whose email isn't on there? The director of officials. Huh. How about that? Make of that what you will. So that's where I'm going to leave it on this episode of the Igloo. So a big thank you again to my Butler and UConn representatives that joined me to preview the home and home coming up between the two schools, Henry Breedmeyer and Michael Solomon. And I hope that y'all enjoyed most of this episode, minus my ranting, screaming, and it borderline seemed frantic and downright insane. But for those of you that stuck through, thank you. I mean, y'all deserve the thank you because, I mean, you don't have to put up with it. But for those of you that did, I appreciate it because at least you see that it's coming from passion and not just because I'm just ranting just because I like, like, I hate James Breeding. Like, James Breeding has given me reason to hate him. It's just a track record that we can't put up with anymore. As a conference with some dignity. And to save our dignity, we need to get better officials. Or we need better officials on on Big East games. We can't be selling for guys like James Brady. And in the same vein, I mean, John Rothstein even said it himself. He had already seen two abominable calls in the first two hours of the college basketball slate Saturday. Not just Seton Hall Marquette, but Northwestern Michigan State, where referees just made abysmally bad calls. And he said in caps, be better at your job. And keep in mind, this is coming from a guy who rarely ever rips officials. That's when you know it's bad. And when you have a real problem on your hands. So I hope the Big East, again, I don't want to condemn them or say that they're horrible, yada, yada, yada. But if you know you got a problem on your hands, y'all need to address it. And put an end to it before it becomes an unstoppable wave where it's going to catch up 
and everyone is going to fall victim to it, to this poor officiating. It won't just be St. John's UConn, Seton Hall Marquette. You know, every team that gets James breeding on a game will fall victim to it. Hell, even DePaul Butler, it happened with them. Like, like when's it going to hit Georgetown? When's it going to hit Providence? When's it going to hit Creighton? When's it going to hit Nova? Even though Nova, you know, they tend to get favored. When's it going to hit Xavier? Like, ay, ay, ay. Like, like, put us out of our misery already. Please. I'm, be- I'm begging the biggies to please put us, not just me out of my misery, put all of us out of our misery and never have to make us, no, and what I should say is never force us, but never subject us to a James Breeding-led officiating crew on a Big East game ever again. I'm begging you. I'm pretty sure everyone else would beg you. Please? I know it's a late ask for Christmas. Or maybe, depending on how you ask, I mean, I feel like it's a late ask, but it may be even an early ask. I mean, 11 months ahead of time for Christmas 2022. But, I mean, if I want this stop to stop now, I'll take it as a late Christmas request. Please just get better officials and more importantly, never let James Breeding near a Big East court ever again or a Big East conference game ever again. I mean, if he wants to get a Big East team in a non-conference game, fine. But don't let him near a Big East conference game again because he clearly isn't cut out for this league and doesn't fit in with the mold with all these other officials like the ones I mentioned. Just please, for the love of God, get rid of James Breeding on as part of your big as part of your biggies regular officials. Please, pretty please with the cherry on top. Would that help? But anyways, so that's gonna wrap it up. Uh, thanks for tuning in. I'm out of breath this whole goddamn episode, so um, I want to take the next. Three days, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday to, you know, catch my breath. And, um, you know, I'll catch y'all on Friday where we'll have another back-to-back preview where Seton Hall St. John's, they're going to be going home and home. They'll play Saturday in the Garden. And then two days later in the first Big East Conference game at Walsh. Yes, at Walsh Gym on Seton Hall's campus. First Big East men's conference home game since 1985. And joining me to honor college radio, I got the sports directors from WSJU and WSOU to preview that. And joining me for it, it'll be from WSJU, Michael Zabo and Chris Bello. And from WSOU, it will be Heaven Hill. So that'll be coming up on the next episode of the Igloo coming out Friday. So until next time, this is Timmy Ice t- signing off. Thank you for tuning in and for sticking with me throughout the entire episode. I know it was a lot between power rankings, a long weekend recap, and of course that icebreaker. But everything had to be said. I had to get it out of the way. But I think that's the perfect place to finally say goodbye. And for those of you whose ears are probably bleeding at this point, Um, get a tissue and clean them out. (laughs) I'm I'm just kidding. Uh, 
you could clean them out. They actually are. And then when you're done cleaning them out, I'll see you on the next episode of the Eagle on Friday. Take it easy, y'all.